I'm a huge planner. So whenever my wife, Radhi and I would go on our adventures, I'd meticulously plan out our itineraries and book our accommodations in advance. It's like a yearly tradition that we do. And let me tell you, Booking.com has been my go-to every step of the way. Whether I want to be a simple guy nestled in the countryside or be the stylish and modern guy in the heart of the city, Booking.com never fails to offer a wide range of options that perfectly suit your preferences and they have everything you need to turn your travel dreams into reality, offering accommodations here in the US. Plus, the ease of booking through the app makes the whole process a breeze. So trust me when I say, when it comes to planning unforgettable getaways, Booking.com is where it's at. Ready to book your next adventure? Book whoever you want to be on Booking.com. Booking.yeah. Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. How do you feel you have the number one album in the country? And I remember saying, I've never been more unhappy in my life. Let's say you spend 20 years of your life working towards a goal that's going to solve everything and nothing changes. That's when you get hopeless. The best-selling author and host. The number one health and wellness podcast. On Purpose with Jay Shetty. Hey everyone, welcome back to On Purpose, the number one health podcast in the world. Thanks to each and every one of you that come back every week to listen, learn, and grow. I'm so grateful that together we're trying to make the world a happier, healthier, and more healed place. And you know, my goal in life with this show is to try and introduce you to people that I find have fascinating insights have counterintuitive points of view, are able to open our minds, help us imagine and think differently. And today's guest is someone that our teams have been in touch for around maybe three years at this point. And I was waiting for this opportunity to sit with him uh, in his presence in person. And so I feel really grateful to have this opportunity. I'm speaking about none other than nine-time Grammy-winning producer, named one of the 100 most influential people in the world by time, and the most successful producer in any genre by Rolling Stone. Rick Rubin, of course, has collaborated with artists from Tom Petty to Adele, Johnny Cash to the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Beastie Boys to Slayer, Kanye West to The Strokes, and System of a Down to Jay-Z. Rick Rubin, welcome to On Purpose. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually in person and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com forward slash healthier happens together. 
CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Atna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Whenever I travel, I feel like I become a new person. Like that time I explored the bustling streets of New York, I felt like I became Curious Jay, immersing myself in the vibrant culture and sampling exotic street food. And then there was that trip to the mountains where I transformed into Adventurous Jay, conquering hiking trails and embracing the breathtaking scenery. And let me tell you, Booking.com has been my go-to for all my adventures. Whether I'm exploring the bustling streets of New York or venturing into the serene mountains, Booking.com has a wide variety of options, offering accommodations all across the US and all around the world that suit every kind of traveler. So when you're ready to plan your next trip and discover new sides of yourself, remember to book with Booking.com. Whether you're craving adventure in a cabin, a bit of luxury in a fancy hotel, some quality family time in a vacation rental, or just some chill vibes at a beachside resort, Booking.com has you covered. Ready to book your next adventure? Book whoever you want to be on Booking.com, Booking.yeah. Herbs hold a special place in my wellness journey, a tradition deeply rooted in my Indian heritage. Introduced to me by my mom, their healing properties have been part of my life since I was born. Growing up, I witnessed firsthand the remarkable effects of herbs on both physical and mental well-being. Among the herbs I take are ashwagandha for its adaptogenic properties, slippery elm bark for gastrointestinal health. Our sponsor Nature's Way has these herbs and hundreds more that help support everything from healthy digestion to sleep to stress. They have over 50 years of experience with sourcing herbs from all over the world in the climates where they grow best. Every batch of herbs is rigorously tested for potency and purity in their state-of-the-art lab. Nature's Way believes nature is the ultimate problem solver and is dedicated to bringing the power of plants to help people live healthier lives. To learn more, visit naturesway.com forward slash herbs and use code J10 at checkout for our 10% off any herbal supplements. Terms and conditions apply, valid through June 30th. Bruce, thank you for being here, Rick. Thank you for having me, sir. <laughs> Just from the moment you walked in, it was, uh, I, I felt a sense of synergy, uh, which was really beautiful to experience as we were just walking over here. And I, I would never start an interview with this question. Uh, today, we're obviously talking about your new book, which, by the way, needs no introduction in and of itself. It's been performing incredibly well. It's been on the New York Times bestseller list for, for months now. The Creative Act, A Way of Being. If you don't already have this book, I highly recommend it. Whether you think you're a creative or not, this is a book that's going to help you tap inward into helping you access a part of yourself that you may not even know exists or refine and deepen a part that does exist. So highly recommend the creative act that we're talking about today. Rick, I wouldn't usually start with this question, but I feel like you're someone that when I, when I was preparing for this interview today, this was the question that stood out to me the most. And so I, I had to ask it to you. You start this book by saying we're all creators, right? We, we're all creators. And I'm, I'm intrigued to know who have you created? Like, who are you? Like, at, at the core of it, how do you see yourself? I think we live in a world today where 
people create who we are to us in our own minds. Our families and friends create us. Our The media we consume creates us. And I think everyone will agree that we, we have so many influences, but who's the you you're trying to create or have tried to create over the last few decades? I don't know if trying would be the word I would use. I would say um, I'm true to whoever's inside there. I don't look at the outside very much. I look inward and try to focus on what do I feel? What am I seeing in the hopes that by sharing what's going on in me, it maybe resonates with someone else. I can't predict what someone else would like. Mm. And I don't think anybody can. So if I'm true, authentically true to myself, that's the best chance of someone else liking something. Mm. So I would say tuning into myself and being honest with myself and anything I can do to get closer to understanding what I like and why I like it and what I don't like and why I don't like it is helpful in, in the work that I do. Yeah, I, I love that idea of almost like a personal check-in or a sense check. And it's interesting, we do it after we eat food. Like, you know, whether you liked a restaurant or you didn't yeah, like a restaurant yeah. or- you, It's it's automatic it's with automatic. food. It's funny because I've been asked about like, how can you be so confident in your opinion? It's like, if you taste food, how confident can you be if you like it or you don't like it? It's so clear. It's <laughs> yeah. so face value. Yeah. And I, I think we tend to overthink and put layers on top of something as simple as it tastes really good. I like it. Yeah. Or you know what? This one's not for me. Yeah. Absolutely. It's as simple as that. Absolutely. And and why do you think it is though that over the years we've all as humans, from your perspective, your opinion, I'd be fascinated to know you've worked with so many people who also make things that are fascinating to billions of people on the planet, right? There's, we all experience what it feels like to get five, 10 people to laugh at a joke or listen to something we do. But when you're creating at that scale, what in your opinion has made us so addicted to wanting to become someone that people like and often go against who we truly are? You just said you, you like to sense that authenticity and feel how you feel. A lot of people are scared of that. A lot of people would rather mold and become malleable and evolve and become who people want them to be. Why, why are we, why do you think that is? People like to be accepted. People want to be accepted. And I'm suggesting in the book that the, the best way to be accepted is to be yourself. It's not, it's not to change yourself to what someone else thinks. First of all, you don't really know what someone else thinks. And if you're not genuine to yourself, there's there's like nothing, nothing is there. It's just a projection or a mask. It's not true. Mm. And there's something about authenticity. Like I get to work with artists, some of whom have very different ways of seeing the world than me. And I support their vision a million percent, even though whatever they're talking about may be, I may be diametrically opposed to what they're talking about, mm. but I support them a million percent and anything I can do to support support them getting their message across the clearest they can, I support that. The only way we can um, learn anything is through the reality of seeing what's around us and learning there are these different points of view around us. If we're all thinking the same thing, it's boring. Why would we make anything if everyone thinks the same thing? What makes us interesting are the differences. Mm. And even, even the imperfections, the imperfections are what makes us humans, what makes us what we are. 
it's like um, there's so much talk today about chat GPT and AI. It's like it's a different thing than a human sharing their own experience, mm. warts and all. Mm. That's what we love. Mm. We love. You know, you, you may hear a song about um, someone who has terrible heartbreak, and you may not be experiencing terrible heartbreak, but hearing them honestly talk about a human experience, even one that we're not having, can make us cry, can make us resonate with them, can give us a better understanding of the world. Mm, absolutely. And yeah. we're not all everything. You know, we're all only us. Each of us is ourselves. Yeah. One thing, when I was reading your book, it reminded me of something else I read a while ago. And what I read said that the Japanese say we have three faces. One face that we show the entire world. The second face is the face that we only show our family and friends. And the third face, they say, we show no one at all. Maybe not even ourselves sometimes. We don't even... But what you're saying is almost like when we tap into that essence and become that self, that's where all this beauty and imagination and creativity stems from. Yeah, it's the most, in, it's the, seems to be the most interesting and the most particular, you know, um, in, in a sea of information, the more yours is personal, the more it's not like hers or his mm. or theirs. It's, it's yours. Yeah. And for all of us, we get more of a, a sense of reality. Even if our views are different than everyone else's, it still helps us understand this is this place that we're in where there are these, there are these different views. It's interesting. When, when I speak to someone who has a different view on anything, I always want to learn more. Mm -hmm. How did you get there? What can I learn from you? You know, I never assume that I know anything. Were you always like that or were there experiences in your childhood that informed that? Because I feel like there are a lot of people more generally speaking, and I don't like to stereotype, but just as an overall sense, a lot of the reasons why we struggle with doing what you just said is defending our viewpoint gives us a sense of safety and security and we feel vulnerable if someone else's viewpoint that seems opposite to ours could be true. So that's one reason. The second is we generally struggle as humans to entertain two opposing ideas. We, we struggle to understand the nuance that someone can be kind, but also be assertive or someone can be complex yet really compassionate. Like there can be these paradoxes that exist. I was reading recently about how black and white TVs are not really black and white. They're shades of gray. There is no black and white pixel. It's really, really minute shades of shades of gray that are changing. So were you always that way, always that curious? Did that start somewhere? Does that come from parents? Where, where did that come for you? I'm intrigued. I would say I've always been open-minded. Earlier in my career, I probably had more of a view of I know how to do it. Like I know my way and my way was fine. But over the years, I've realized that my way isn't necessarily the best way. It's just one way. And there are many other ways that are great. I was a vegan for 22 years, and now I'm mainly carnivore. It, it, when you've really committed to a vegan lifestyle, it's very difficult to break out of it. And for about a year, I was a, I believed that eating meat was the healthiest thing I could do, but I couldn't do it because I was a vegan. I was committed to being a vegan. 
So it's a perfect example because it was something I was dedicated to for a long period of time. I had new information. It was hard to change. It was hard to break out of it. But as we get new information, we have to evolve. How can we, how can we live in an old belief? If you believe the same thing that you believed 20 years ago about everything, I, I don't know that you're living. And so we've, we've got to have that openness and the ability to a curiosity, a curiosity yeah. about what's it like if, if my view is my view of the world is wrong? What does someone else know? What can I learn from? Not to disregard what someone else thinks. Like, why do they think that? What I know there's something I can learn from someone who sees it differently than me. And yeah. I want to understand it. Yeah. And that's exactly why I asked you about your past, because I feel that I always try and study someone's past in order to understand how they came to a conclusion because, or even their behaviors, often the people that I feel act in ways that seem unreasonable or ways that I don't agree with. When I track back and look at their past, I can often be like, oh, there are the dots and, th and they can probably see them too of why they've chosen that path. Not that that path is right or wrong, um, it, it takes a lot to go beyond right and wrong because these constructs are so, and that's what I feel this book does. This book in itself breaks the construct of what a book is, right? Like that, when I picked it up, I, I was assuming that I was going to read a memoir or like stories and tells. I, I assumed that's what it would be in my belief system of what a book is by a prominent figure who's had a life such as yours. And then I open it up and I was like, wait a minute, this is like, this is not what I was expecting. And I'm seeing like poetry and I'm seeing like rhymes and I'm seeing just short reflections and some really beautiful, even exercises and activities that you suggest. And I thought even in this book, you're breaking down what someone sees as a book. I mean, the cover does that, it's stunning. And it's like, that's something I would love to help people develop. Because I think it's a skill, it's a habit. And you talk about habits in the book and we're only as creative as the habits we keep, you say. How do we develop that mindset? Is there a step-by-step -step system or is it something that you just start tomorrow and you now are more curious when something conflicting comes your way? It's something you get better at the more you practice. Mm -hmm. And meditation is a great tool to quiet ourselves enough to get in touch with how we see the world. Mm. The closer we can get to what we see, that's a starting position to be able to then understand how someone else sees it. And it's interesting to be able to learn to argue the points opposite what you believe. You know, if you don't understand all sides of, of the story, you don't really understand the story. So it's helpful to understand the whole picture and be hold all of the beliefs softly enough to be surprised and learn something new and change everything. You know, the book is called The Creative Act and it is about being creative more than even doing things that are creative. But have you ever sacrificed creativity for anything on any project or in any personal endeavor in life where creativity had to be sacrificed or you felt pushed to sacrifice or where you felt it was being where, where there was a bit of a part of you that was like, I might have to let go. In the world of art, I feel fearless. I feel like whatever strikes me as this is what's interesting to me, I'm good with that. It doesn't extend as strongly into life. I know people who are completely fearless in life. I'm, I'm not there yet. 
It's very impressive. I love it. But within the confines of creativity and making things, I know, um, and only I know it through experience, I started only making things I liked. Luckily, people liked them. Otherwise, I'd have a different job. I would still be making things because it was always my passion. I never thought it would be my work. I, I always knew I would make things because that's what I love to do. I thought I would have a regular straight job to support my habit of making things. And then miraculously, um, the universe allowed me to make things as a as a full-time thing in life. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's amazing how we always talk about how like life imitates art or art imitates life. And why has it been harder to translate from art to life that idea of fearlessness, what are the things that you find yourself fearing in life that, that you find so effortless here? There's a life and death commitment in art that's different than the life and death commitment in life. Jumping out of an airplane is different than, you know, telling a controversial joke. I can, I can remember recently, four or five years ago, I had open heart surgery and I was really afraid. And I was with a an artist friend who is a fearless artist. And, and I told him, yeah, I'm going into the surgery. I'm really nervous. He's like, oh, you're going to be fine. No, why are you even thinking about that? Like, that's, that's a crazy thought. Because he's confident. He's fearless in life. Still, the, the normal fears of life get me. But in art, I know the real power in it is going to the fringe edges of where you can go. That's what it, the purpose of doing it is to see how far you can take it. So I feel in a way obligated to do that. So I know that's what's, that's what's most interesting to me. You know, there's so much middle of the road and it doesn't interest me. I want it because it's louder, quieter, softer, harder. It's pushing some boundary. That's why I take notice. It's not more of the same. It's not just another. It's the one that makes you, it's like, you stop and, did I really hear that? Did I really see that? What's going on here? You know, what you see a movie where you have to lean forward and pay attention, like, what's happening? It's not just the audience's hand is being held and walk through a story simply. I like the, um, the complexity and difficulty that forces me as the viewer to participate in what's going on. I'm not just being uh, carried along. I'm intrigued if you'd be happy to go there. How do you use some of the creativity that you found in art in order to navigate some of the fears in life? Is it helpful? It is helpful. And, and one of the things is... is realizing the attitude we bring to things changes it completely. So the same event could be terrifying or we can decide it's okay. And it's the same exact event. It's just a, a mentality. I had an experience years ago. I grew up in a place where there were no um, insects. Uh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Where I grew up was just a very uh, contained, protected environment. So I was, af and my mom was afraid of insects. So I grew up with this feeling of insects as foreign and scary. And I was in Hawaii about seven years ago, and there are centipedes that can sting you. They don't kill you, but they're very painful. 
and I'd always, and I'd been going to Kauai for a long time and um, was aware of them and in the back of my mind, afraid of them. And one night I woke up, my head was itchy. I brushed my head and I felt something extremely painful. And I said to my wife, I think I was just stung by a centipede and I have one of two choices. I can panic, which is what my entire life has led me up to, or I can decide it's okay and go back to sleep. (laughs) (laughs) And she said, the second one sounds better. (laughs) I'll do that. Hmm. 20 years ago, I don't know if I could have done that. 30 years ago, I'm sure I couldn't have done that. The panic is what I've been trained for my whole life. That's that conditioning where we're all, as you said, trained, conditioned, prepared for in a certain way. Yeah. Even even things that we don't know about. Like mm. we, we may be afraid. Did you know that people were not afraid of sharks before the movie Jaws? No, I did not know that. The, the reason everyone's afraid of sharks is because of the movie Jaws. Wow. That I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that makes the a world. lot of sense. Yeah. Change the world. Yeah, and it, it's unbelievable how... Yeah, what we seek or what we shun comes from a movie or a song or a visual demonstration of what whatever it may be. And I find the hence so many fears are not real. And as we're talking about, fear only so often exists mainly in the mind. And and that's what we're talking about. It's a construct of the mind. When we're talking about creativity, you address this fear head on in the beginning because it is a fear. Everyone has somewhat of a fear, just as we say things like, oh, I can't sing. We say things like, oh, well, I'm not creative or I'm not artistic or I've never really been a creative, I'm more academic or whatever it may be. We have these, again, constructs, right and wrong, academic, creative, mostly polar opposites. And you're actually saying, no, 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 this is something everyone can access and has access to. And do, and and do do, access. And do access. Yeah, we we just don't all acknowledge it. Mm. But deciding to take a different route home because there's a traffic jam in front of you and figuring out the way to go, that's a creative decision. Cooking food and it tasting a certain way and you think, oh, maybe it'll taste better if I add this to it, that's a creative decision. Mm. We all do them every day we make creative choices. Anytime we do something that's not exactly the same as the way we did it yesterday, the reason it's different is because we made a creative choice. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. As simple as that. As simple as just, that. Just just a detour in a car. Anything. Little sprinkle of this or that. Yes. Yeah. So we're all doing it, and the book is uh, an invitation to open that channel as far and freely as you can. It, it really does that. I, I really believe it does that. I, I what I love about it is you can truly turn to any page. And I know they say this about a lot of books and I, I don't think it's true for most books, to be honest, because if you pick a random book, a random page of a book, it, the context is completely out. Whereas with this, there truly is that sense of if you're looking for that creativity, if you're trying to seek it within yourself, there's something that will inspire you. What have you found over the years, working with artists, working with yourself, what have been the biggest blocks to creativity or to accessing that? What are the biggest blocks? Is it I know, and and I'll touch on a few that I'm intrigued by and curious about, but what would you say are the biggest blocks that people have to being truly creative and imaginative? One big block is concerns about what other people think. Mm. That's a big one. Mm. I, I made this thing that I love, but I think other people would like it more if I made it 
different for them. We don't know what they would like. It's a, it's a really, it's all in our head. It comes back to this thing of what I think isn't good enough. Mm. You know, if I like it, that doesn't mean anything. That's what people think. It's like, just because I like it, that doesn't give it any value. It's like, as an artist, if you like it, that's all of the value. That's the success comes when you say, I like this enough for other people to see it. Not other people like it, so it's successful. That doesn't mean anything because that's, other people liking it is out of your control. All that's in your control is making the thing to the best of your ability. I talk about it, usually the way I talk about it is greatness. And that's the way I thought of it my whole life was, my interest is in making something great, greatness, lasting greatness, timeless. And I came to realize recently, it's all an offering to God. And if you're making an offering to God, you're not thinking about, oh, what's the budget? Or I hope, I hope these, this segment of the audience is going to like it. We don't, we don't think like that. It's a higher vibration. We're making the best we can make to the best of our ability out of love and devotion. That's what it is. And there is no, I'm changing it for someone else because it can't be better than this devotional act that we're doing. There is no higher, no higher form. Yeah, and that's what you see so much in, in nature around us. I've always found like the sun is just selflessly serving and giving. And you see a bush of flowers or you see a tree that's growing fruits. And again, it's providing shade and fruit and it's just serving and it's interesting how when you call it a devotional act, the idea that it's, it's a service, it's an offering, as you said. In, Absolutely. In that and, language. And even an offensive song is that to someone. To someone, it's like um, I worked with band Slayer. And Slayer were a very controversial, aggressive band. And the people who came to see them didn't come to see them in filled with hate. <laughs> they, came to, they came to see them filled with love. And for many of the people in the audience, maybe the only experience of love they had was connecting over Slayer. You know, there, there, were, there were people in the audience who seemed like, other than this thing to devote themselves passionately to, seemed like often hopeless people. And for them to have something that they loved was beautiful to witness. This episode is brought to you by 8sleep. I have to admit, I used to have this old mattress that wasn't the best. It was low quality and so uncomfortable, and it made me really hot at night, which was not really helpful when trying to get good sleep. Did you know that temperature is one of the most important factors in improving your sleep quality? When you wake up in the middle of the night or feel extra groggy in the morning, temperature is almost always to blame. Why? While traditional mattresses trap heat throughout the night, science has shown that your body temperature actually needs to drop in the early and middle part of your sleep and rise in the morning so that you can fall asleep fast and get more deep sleep. The pod cover by 8sleep fits on any bed like a fitted sheet. The pod cover will improve your sleep by automatically adjusting the temperature on each side of the bed based on you and your partner's individual needs. It can cool down and warm up and adjust based on the phases of your sleep and the environment that you're in. My 8sleep mattress has been a total game changer for me. Not only is it super comfortable, but the temperature control technology has improved my quality of life in so many ways. 
I'm sleeping better, I feel more refreshed in the morning, and my mental health has even gotten a boost. They really go above and beyond to create innovative products that actually make a difference in people's lives. The temperature control system is just the tip of the iceberg. The mattress also tracks my sleep patterns, and I can even integrate it with my smart home system. I've never experienced sleep like this. Invest in the rest you deserve with the 8 Sleep Pod. Go to 8sleep.com forward slash purpose and save $150 on the pod cover by 8 Sleep. That's the best offer you'll find, but you must visit 8sleep.com forward slash purpose for $150 off. 8sleep currently ships within the USA, Canada, the UK, select countries in the EU and Australia. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually in person and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com forward slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Whenever I travel, I feel like I become a new person. Like that time I explored the bustling streets of New York, I felt like I became Curious Jay immersing myself in the vibrant culture and sampling exotic street food. And then there was that trip to the mountains where I transformed into Adventurous Jay, conquering hiking trails and embracing the breathtaking scenery. And let me tell you, Booking.com has been my go-to for all my adventures. Whether I'm exploring the bustling streets of New York or venturing into the serene mountains, Booking.com has a wide variety of options, offering accommodations all across the US and all around the world that suit every kind of traveler. So when you're ready to plan your next trip and discover new sides of yourself, remember to book with Booking.com. Whether you're craving adventure in a cabin, a bit of luxury in a fancy hotel, some quality family time in a vacation rental, or just some chill vibes at a beachside resort, Booking.com has you covered. Ready to book your next adventure? Book whoever you want to be on Booking.com, Booking.yeah. And that, that sounds like one, I think you're spot on that, that fear of what will people think? What will people say? Art versus audience almost. And I feel that that has become such a big challenge in today's world because there's so much data available, social media available, and you get instant feedback, right? So I think in the past, a band would lock themselves in a shed or whatever it may be and then work on stuff and maybe their friends would listen or they would listen. And But it would take months before the audience heard it. Today, you could literally record something in three seconds, put it up and get instant feedback. And so the feedback loop has got shorter. The time to create something has got shorter. It's easier to publish and it's easier to get criticism or feedback. And so in that world, I find us looking so much at like, well, what's the data saying of the trends of the pace of music or the frequency of music or whatever. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. 
It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually in person and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Atna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com forward slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health and Atna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Whenever I travel, I feel like I become a new person. Like that time I explored the bustling streets of New York, I felt like I became Curious Jay. Immersing myself in the vibrant culture and sampling exotic street food. And then there was that trip to the mountains where I transformed into Adventurous Jay, conquering hiking trails and embracing the breathtaking scenery. And let me tell you, Booking.com has been my go-to for all my adventures. Whether I'm exploring the bustling streets of New York or venturing into the serene mountains, Booking.com has a wide variety of options, offering accommodations all across the US and all around the world that suit every kind of traveler. So when you're ready to plan your next trip and discover new sides of yourself, remember to book with Booking.com. Whether you're craving adventure in a cabin, a bit of luxury in a fancy hotel, some quality family time in a vacation rental, or just some chill vibes at a beachside resort, Booking.com has you covered. Ready to book your next adventure? Book whoever you want to be on Booking.com, Booking.yeah. And that's obviously only music, but you could apply that to anything else. Do, do you think that that obsession in social media, music, movies, of looking at it from a date of, even in movies now, I find like we're just taking old IP and remaking stuff. There's, there's very little new IP. You just keep seeing old IP, finding its way back into TV and movies. Do you say that that's creativity being stifled and, and is hampering creativity? Absolutely. And the beauty of it is because so much of what's being made is being made that way, that if we choose to make something not like that, it really stands out. Mm. This book, for example, it goes against all of the rules of publishing. From the beginning, I, I started the book eight years ago and I met with publishers eight years ago, told them, this is my vision for this book. And all of them said, that's not the book anybody wants from you. That's not the book. And I said, well, it's, that's the book I want to write. Yeah. And like, well, but surely you'll tell personal stories and you'll talk about Johnny Cash and you'll talk about, it's like, no, that's not what this is. Yeah. It's a different book. Yeah. And then I decided not to make a publishing deal then because even the ones who said they would go along with what my vision was, I could see that they really were fantasizing a different book than this book. Yeah. I waited till the book was written and then said, do you want to publish this book? Not the book you think is the book that you want me to write, but yeah. this is the book that I, that I wrote, that I wanted to write and wrote. Do you want to publish this book? And then yeah. when they read it, they're like, oh yes, publish this. <laughs> That's brilliant. The reason I'm laughing so much is because I, with my first book, I had, I had thought of the title when I was writing it because it resonated with me because it was playful, but also curious and, and it, and it felt true to me. It was the biggest reason why I chose the title. It just, it felt like it was truth. And so the title I'd, I was proposing for my first book was Think Like a Monk. And 
I'd lived as a monk for three years. I'd studied under these incredible monks and I wanted to share what I'd learned from these masters who'd spent 40, 50 years living as monks. And so the book was almost an offering to them in, in yes. the way you're saying it, a devotional act back to my teachers and yes. guides. And every publisher is like, Jay, you should just write a book about like how to find your passion or like, you know, like what you love in life. And I was just like, that's, there's beauty in that. There's yeah. nothing wrong with the book about how to find your passion. That's great. But that's not me. Like, it's not my experience. It's not my book. And I remember 15 out, 14 out of 17 imprints said no to that title. Yeah. And we still went with it. Yes. And I couldn't be more happier because of that. But you're right. You can't control what the audience wants, even if you played every perfect metric in game. No. But we think we can. We, we think there's a part of us. And that's what I was going to ask you, that almost one end is saying, I am too worried about what people think. But the opposite almost is the ego of I can either control everything perfectly so that this becomes the number one chart topping song or I'm right and I know everything. Is that, do you see that as a block to creativity and how and, yeah, and how do you I, purify I think, that? I think the, the goal is to get to this. This is how I see it. I don't know what other people are going to think. I can't know what other people are going to think. But this is how I see it. And I want to show you how I see it. That's my purpose here on the planet, is to show you how I see it. And then I want to see how you see it. And where do they line up and where are they different? And that's how we make sense of the world. It's not one story. Yeah. We all have a story. Yeah. We all have something to say. And we can all learn from each other. And it's it's fascinating. It's like there's there are the same set of chords used in all the songs, yet new songs keep coming. You know, there's someone who say all the songs have been written. They're, they've, it keeps happening. It, how, how do new jokes come up? <laughs> they're all, it's like, they're all the same, yeah. but then they're all different. Yeah. And how, how we interpret it and our each, and it comes from each of our life experiences, which are different. We, we each have our own family origin story. We each have our own places that we grew up, the things that we saw we could go uh, and do the same thing together and then get back and discuss what we saw and see two completely different things. And yeah. it's not like one of us is right and one of us is wrong. We're just noticing different things. There's so many data points to take in and we each take in the ones that speak to us. Mm, so true. Yeah, you, you reminded me of the famous words of Mark Twain of history never repeats itself, but it always rhymes. <laughs> and that, right, that... The idea of like, yeah, like the same song doesn't come back, but there's a rhyme, there's a, there's the chord, there's the, but but it's still different. And and there's some beautiful, I want to point out to everyone because I, I really do want you to get this book, everyone who's listening and watching right now. Uh, and there's, I've, I've like dog-eared some pages <laughs> that, that have some really beautiful moments. I really like this because one thing I really aim to do here on, on the podcast, but also in life is to try and give people really practical, tiny steps that they could take. And you you do that artfully in this book. And there was this section here, uh, which identifies why I brought it up now, because exactly what you said, breaking the sameness, right? And, and we think there's the sameness or completeness. And you give these beautiful examples of things people can do in order to do that. And I just want to touch on a couple of them. Please. And would love to hear some examples from you that where it worked. So I really like this one, change the context. So you say, there are times when a singer doesn't connect with a song like an actor whose line reading falls flat. 
it can be helpful to create a new meaning or an additional backstory to a song's lyrics. A love song might sound different if sung to a long lost soulmate, a partner of 30 years that you don't get along with, a person you saw on the street but never spoke to, or your mother. Have you, I was intrigued, have you ever asked an artist to sing to someone real in their life, potentially, to get an emotion out? Yes, there's a, the first example that comes to mind is we were doing a cover of the song The First Time Ever I Saw Your Face with Johnny Cash, and he read the lyrics and he said, I don't know if I could sing this song. I don't really feel these words. And I said, well, how about if it's a devotional song to God? He's like, I could sing that song. And when he changed it to being not singing it to a woman, but singing it to God, he was able to tap into the energy of the song and he felt the vibration. He felt, he, he felt the trueness to him in singing it. Wow, yeah. And so he, but everyone still thought the song was about a woman. It is. Yeah, and yeah the song it is. is about the a song woman. is. Yeah, right, yeah. right, 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 right. Yeah, but there's, yeah. there's a long history of songs that are love songs that could be to a woman or could be devotional. Yeah. It's interesting when songs walk this line or when we think we know what a song's about. Yeah. And we think it's about a ro romantic relationship when it's really about their child. You know, the, these devotional songs. So, and I'm sharing this with all of you who are listening and watching because I know you're, I know where you're sitting there thinking, Jay, I procrastinate, I overthink, I don't know how to focus, which we'll get into all of that. But I want to share these with you because I want you to try them out in your own area and the, world, the work you do. So change the environment. If we're looking for a performance of a different nature, it can help to change an element of the environment. Turning off the lights and playing in the dark can create a shift in consciousness and break the chain of sameness from performance to performance. Other shifts we've experimented with include having a singer hold the microphone instead of standing in front of it and recording early in the morning instead of at night. To access a greater degree of variation, one vocalist chose to hang upside down while singing. Could you tell us some examples of those? Because I find that, again, these are just, they're so simple but we don't do it. We will sit at the same desk every day, banging our head against the wall with the same tabs open on Google going, why can't I be creative? Yeah. And it's often these physical, tangible changes around us. Yeah. yeah. And so it happened in the studio. It's not uncommon if we've played a song three or four or five or six times and it just feels like it's not getting better or we've reached a certain peak and it's really not all it could be, but then it starts not being as good. Usually when that happens, as soon as you reach whatever peak you're at and it starts coming down, we usually stop playing the song. Mm. Um, but one thing we've done in the past also would be, again, changing the contest, turning the lights off in the studio, is it changes everything. Mm -hmm. It's not take seven, <laughs> it's the first take in the dark. And it changes, it changes. The first album I recorded with the Red Hot Chili Peppers was their, I think it was their fifth album. And the albums that they had done before, they had all done in traditional recording studios. And them, they told me that none of those were good experiences. So we thought about what could we do for this experience to make it the first different one instead of the fifth if the first four were bad. Could have been the first good one in in the same environment, or we could change the environment and it would be the first of any kind. So we chose to rent this big house not far from here 
and recording this mansion. And that was very different than showing up to a recording studio with people working in an office and other musicians and other other places. We had our whole own world that we created. And, and some of the members of the band didn't leave during the entire, I don't know, six weeks or two months. They never left the premises. They just stayed there, slept there, ate there, worked there, and um, never left until it was done. Wow. Yeah. I love that one. Uh, invite an audience. This one makes sense, but but I think people need to do more. When an artist thrives on being in front of a crowd, we may bring in several people to watch a session. Being observed changes how an artist acts. Even if the audience consists only of on one person who isn't part of the project, that can be enough. While some artists may overdo a performance for an audience and others may hold back, most tend to be more focused with someone else present. Even if your art is non-performative, such as writing or cooking, it will still likely change with an observer present. The goal is to find the specific parameters in each case that bring out your best. I, I love the idea. I had a few friends a few years ago. One of their buddies wanted to become a stand-up comic, but he had no experience in stand-up comedy. So they threw him a stand-up show in their backyard and there were like 15 of us present in the audience. He got announced onto stage in front of an audience that wasn't gonna heckle or be the meanest to him. And he got to practice. And it was it was just such a beautiful way, A, to do that for your friends, but to experience that. And I'm, I'm on tour at the moment, this is my break period, but for my test, we were practicing, rehearsing in a small theater in Thousand Oaks. And so what the theater said to us is they could throw it out to their local audience members who would have no clue who I was or what I was doing. And they'd come along. Little did I know that we'd have like 50 to a hundred people that weekend watching the show just as a rehearsal. Yeah. And it was so useful to me before Absolutely. I went out and it was huge, like Absolutely. huge. So I loved that one. I was listening to a story on the way here. I was listening to a podcast in the car and it told a story about the Beatles, um, that when the Beatles were interviewed individually, they were all these thoughtful, interesting, soulful people. Wow. But when they were interviewed, even two together, they became sarcastic and did, never said much about, about anything real and was much more of a performative, cool, like to look cool in front of the other one. Wow. That just be, being with each other changed the way that they appeared in the world. Mm. Wow. Yeah. That, that group aspect is so interesting. You, you've just sparked another thought for me that I think it would be really interesting to, for people to hear you going back to this. It's interesting again, them being on their own allowed them to be more of their authentic, deeper self to some degree, yes. I guess. I think it was in Bob Iger's book where he talked about how he was saying that George Lucas, Spielberg, Tarantino and, and a bunch of others used to almost have a movie mastermind where they'd played their movies to each other before they went out. And he was saying that that's how confident they felt about their own work because they were showing their competitors their movies, yes. but they weren't scared of anyone stealing an idea or no. taking a concept because they were so confident in who they were and all their friends were so confident in their styles. And we know that a Tarantino movie versus a Spielberg movie has no similarities. Yes. Uh, and in some ways that community, we talk about that in the book too, mm -hmm. having a community 
of, it, it doesn't have to be people who do the same kind of art as you, but people who just taste you, you respect, you like what they do, they like what you do, and being able to share your work back and forth is a really great feeling. Yeah, how have you, that's that's a really nice segue. How is that? How has that affected how you've learned to filter criticism and feedback? Because again, going back to the world we live in today, because of that instant feedback loop, you can have a hundred comments that are negative on social media. Your song didn't make it. It's not as big as the next album. You have the top 10 chart. You didn't make it. I think the way everything's measured and broadcasted now can make criticism and feedback in one sense seem louder before you went into a room and someone told you you weren't getting a new deal and no one knew. Today, you didn't get a new deal and the whole world knows and your fans know and the opposing fans know. It's messy. It's like, how have you worked on that for yourself and the work you've done? And even the artists that you work with, who I'm guessing may be more sensitive to it, may not have that natural confidence or groundedness in what it is, how do you, how, and even people who are listening today, how do we think about feedback and criticism? Most of the artists I work with don't read any, any criticism or reviews of their work, good or bad, mm. most. Some, some do. And I would say the ones who are the strongest in who they are can even read a terrible review and laugh at it. And that makes sense because when someone gives you criticism, it's telling you as much about who they are as what you've made. It's like we make things and then we make it with one through our filter, our perspective. And then you receive it through your filter with your perspective. Mm -hmm. So even if we both like it, we probably don't like it the same way for the same reasons. Mm -hmm. We all have our own relationship to it. Everyone has their own relationship to it. So any of these metrics of which is better, like the idea of the Oscars or uh, the Grammys, where we're saying which, which album is better than another, it doesn't make any sense to me because it's always apples and oranges. If you have a Drake and Beyonce and you're deciding which album's better, well, Drake's album is clearly a better Drake album than Beyonce's album is. <laughs> And Beyonce's album, I'm sure, is a much better Beyonce album out than Drake's album is. But the idea that one's better than the other, mm. it makes no sense. So who has a better diary entry? <laughs> it's like, it's, it's, if we are actually making these personal things, mm. you, you can't compare them or um, compete in any way with anyone else. Mm. The only people who we can honestly compete with is ourselves. It's like, is this the best I can make today? Have I gone further than I've gone before? That's all we can do. That's the only competition that makes sense is continuing to evolve and push ourselves artistically and not get complacent, especially in success. It's easy to get complacent once something works. It's like, I'll just keep doing more of that. It ends up maybe one more time you can get away with it. But once three are similar, it stops being interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that's so true. And, and it com that comes back to that sameness point that we always, and, and I'm just addressing things that I know all of you are thinking and feeling right now, like, or I'm assuming you are, the idea of, oh, Jay, there's already, you know, when I started making podcasts, I think there were like 700,000 podcasts in the world. And today there's like 2 million plus, maybe even more now. 
And that's in three years, it's tripled. Since I started four years ago, it's tripled. And so when I started, everyone's like, Jay, there's 700 podcasts. Too we late. Don't need, you don't need another podcast. Too you late, too late. late. Exactly, you're too late. Uh, and then now everyone's like, oh my God, there's 2 million podcasts. Like, there's too late. And we do that. We, we start again using a metric to say, and you'll only feel that way if you're planning to repeat what's already been done. Uh, because if, if you're not planning to repeat it, then you're one of one. You're not one of 2 million or one of 700,000. It's one of one because th you're only bringing your own essence out, right? Like yes. just because every other podcast, you could be like, there's so many interview podcasts. There are so many interview podcasts. That's true. And they're all different. And they're all different. Yes. Exactly. Like, you know, and we, we got introduced through, um, your long-term friend and our, my new mutual friend, Andrew Huberman, who's also been a guest on this podcast. He has a phenomenal podcast. I love his podcast, uh, but so different to who I am. So, so different. different to what we do. And, and, and then there's a million other friends that we have that have shows. So the most common thing I hear when it comes to creativity or it comes to tapping into your essence is distraction, overthinking, and procrastination. Like those words come up from my community again and again and again. And that's the kind of community listening I do like to do where I'm like, well, what are people struggling with? Because yes. we're trying to help. Yes. What are people's challenges? I, I have to know from them what they think it is. And then I'll also share in the way I do. Have you or anyone you've ever worked with ever dealt with big bouts of procrastination? Oh, absolutely. Overthinking? Yeah. Oh, and, absolutely. Everybody. And how do you define it? Because I almost think- well, like, I would say yeah. there's two- the Distraction and procrastination are related and different. Mm -hmm. Procrastination is not a good one. Distraction can be. Distraction can be helpful. You can use distraction if you hold a question to be solved and don't sit and think and try to solve it, but go do something else and go, you know, take a walk or go for a swim you'll find that it changes, it changes. And the distraction of when you go for a walk and seeing, oh, look at that tree over there, look at those birds, or whoa, that car came kind of close to me. All of those things, that that living in the world, even though it's not um, challenging in any real way, it's a distraction that's using some part of your brain. Some part of your brain is occupied with, do I turn left or do I turn right? Oh, look at that thing over there. Oh, is it going to rain? These other things are happening. That's different than just sitting in a room looking at your laptop. Just those outside cues can give you a way in to solve a problem that you wouldn't solve if you were sitting and working on it. For example, if we were now doing this podcast together on a walk, it would be a very different podcast yeah. than us sitting here staring into each other's eyes. Yeah. And... It's a beautiful idea. I've I've had there was a period of time where um where I lost a whole bunch of weight. And one of the things that I did as part of that was I only did walking meetings. Before I used to only do lunch meetings. So I switched the lunch meetings to walking meetings. And I would meet people in Santa Monica and we would walk. And the meetings were so much better than the meetings either in a restaurant or at uh, in an office. Everything shifted just because we were moving. We're doing something. There were external stimuli, even though the external stimuli had nothing to do with what we were doing. Yeah. It it changed. It was a change in context that really did um, make the conversation much more interesting. And there's also something about when you're walking, you're not looking at each other. So it's easier to 
go into your own thoughts when you're not looking at someone. Mm. So it was very interesting, a great experiment, lost a lot of weight, <laughs> and, and the meetings were the best they've ever yeah, been. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. There's a lot of work in couple psychology that suggests that when couples argue, they're usually sitting on opposite sides of a dining table. And when you're sitting with something in between you, first of all, I mean, uh, here we don't have anything, but you have something in between you, it's already creating a distance. Yes. And now you're working against each other yes. rather than what you're saying is you're walking with each other yes. and you're looking off into the same direction. So you're almost creating a future. Uh, the idea that you're forward, you're, you're future forward, you're future yeah. facing. It's funny, my, my wife and I, whenever we get to a new table and we're sitting to, to eat, we always say, we look at where the chairs are and one of us will say cheek to cheek <laughs> and we all, and we tend to sit next to each other instead of across there from you each go. other, cheek they, to cheek. Yeah, cheek to cheek. I love that. And and that makes so much sense with leadership meetings, creative meetings. And, and I, I love that. I love, love, love. And this is why this book is so beautiful because it has so many really subtle points and the idea of the difference between distraction and procrastination. Yes and how distraction can actually be healthy. And especially, as you said, when you hold a question or you you hold an idea and you're just kind of toying with it, but you might pick up a book, you might go for a walk, you might whatever, you could do all these things, but it's almost like you're using that time wisely to, to come back. And Absolutely, going for a drive is a great one. Yeah. And just, the, just paying attention to not crashing even though we can drive essentially on autopilot, yeah. we're not thinking about driving once we've been driving for a while. Yeah. But just driving, ideas come. I know many musicians, uh, singers, who will listen to the instrumental music in, a ca in the car and then sing along when they're driving yeah. because they're more free than yes. when they're sitting with a recorder. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That makes perfect sense. Yeah, no, and it's... It's so interesting how we have so many, we've also built up, again, going back to our conditioned beliefs, we've built up a negative relationship with the word distraction. We've built up a negative connotation around, if I don't solve it right now, sitting in this one place, then I'm never gonna figure it out. Yeah. And the idea that actually going on a walk, picking up something else, that's, that's one of the reasons why I like having in my office, here in the studio, back in my home, Everything's quite minimalist, but I have a lot of like little artifacts and little things. And because I enjoy the kind of like stimulation and the creative juices that start flowing, if I get a moment to just observe. And then sometimes I just want to observe nature outside where I can just sit and bask and almost bathe in nature, which I find to be so useful because there was this incredible study from MIT a few years ago where they try to look for who are their most creative, innovative employees inside the inside corporate organizations. And MIT was doing the study. They found two sets of charts of types of employees, employee A and employee B. Employee A knew lots of people that knew each other. And employee B knew lots of people that didn't know each other. And they were looking at which one's more creative, innovative, and hence more imaginative inside a company. And they found it was employee B because employee A knew people who knew people who knew them back. Small it, circle, closed small, circle. Closed circles that created these echo chambers. And you asked the same 10 people for advice. And employee B knew lots of random people who had no connection to each other. And the point was being made that if your circle 
and that I think applies to environment as much as it applies Absolutely. to people, Absolutely. is more random and disconnected, you have more chance of having a original, authentic thought idea spark as opposed to you're surrounded by the four same people and you talk about the same things. Absolutely. And and that to me has always been how what I'm trying to do. It's like, I want to know what the monks think and I want to know what Silicon Valley thinks and I want to know what yes. music geniuses think because yes. that's there's something there. Absolutely. A word you use in this book that I want to touch on, and that's why this came up for me, was submerge. And I loved it. When I saw that word, I was just like, yes. Like, I love that. I have thought about that for so long, submerging yourself. We've, we've lost that ability to submerge. We don't submerge ourselves much because we have so much of a little. How have you, in this hyper-connected world, working with the most connected artists in the world, how have you encouraged yourself and others to continue to submerge when everyone's asking us to swim shallow. I think so many of the great artists do it naturally. Can't You can't help it. It's the obsessive nature of being really into something that um, once you start down a, a thread, you just keep pulling forever. If you're interested, many of the artists that, that, that are great at what they do are great at what they do for that very reason. They fall in love with this thing and then they just want to know everything they could possibly learn about it. Um, and there are no distractions. I'm working on a project now, uh, a documentary project with comedians. And one of the things that they talk about is their commitment. Like when other people are doing things on the weekend, going out with their friends, they're going to perform every, you know, mm -hmm. every night that they can possibly go out and perform until they can get good at their craft. And this could be for a period of, you know, 10 years mm -hmm. of just having bad performances, you know, having people not like what you do, like banging your head against the wall, but that obsession with breaking through. And when I say breaking through, I don't mean breaking through to the audience. I mean, breaking through with themselves mm. to where they get past all of the uh, blocks and to be free in this moment in a way where they can really express their views and be heard and people can react. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating thing. Mm, that so, oh, sorry, go ahead. I, I just want to ask about being, uh, being a monk. What, tell me about your experience. Uh, what would you like to know? Um, how did you choose to do this first? I was born and raised in London. And when I was around 18 years old, I started going to events in the city where speakers were invited to come and share their stories or journeys or successes or whatever it may have been. And this is obviously before podcasting and before YouTube. And so you actually went to events to hear people like yourself or anyone speak. And so I would go and listen and there'd be founders of companies, there'd be athletes, there'd be, you know, musicians, people like that, that would come to universities and colleges in, in London. And so I'd go and one of the nights I went, I was invited to hear a monk speak. And I was 18 years old and my, I didn't really have a perception of monks. Like I didn't really have any, I'd, I'd seen saintly people and holy people coming from an Indian background, but I never really knew what monks were or what they did. And so I said to my friends, I didn't really want to go, but I said, I'd only go if we went to a bar afterwards. That was my, that was my state of consciousness, age 18. And my friends were very persuasive and convincing. They said, yeah, yeah, we'll go. And so I went to this event, kind of like not expecting anything, wanting to leave and I was just completely like floored 
this monk was from India. He was born and raised in India. He had a thick Indian accent. He was wearing uh, saffron robes. And there was nothing externally that I should or should have found attractive about him as an 18 year old guy, but his whole message, and it's, that's why I smiled when you said it earlier, like his whole message was that the greatest thing you can do in the world or greatness is to use your gifts in the service of God and use your gifts in the service of humanity as a devotional act. And he was talking about how living in devotion and my 18 year old self was just completely like mesmerized by that idea. I was just like, I've never heard this. Like everyone's been telling us how to be successful and how to start a business and how to launch a company and how to become number one. And it was like, this, this guy was just saying that that wasn't it. And so I went up to him as you do after an event when you're blown away by a speaker. And I just said to him, I was like, I just want to follow you around. Like, I just want to spend time with you and learn from you and sit at your, you know, sit at your feet and just take, observe. And, and he said, well, I'm doing all these events in London this week. You can come. So I would go along. And then that turned into my, during college, that turned into my summer and Christmas vacations being with him. And then when I graduated, I turned down my corporate job offers and actually went and lived there for three years. Fantastic. And so it was like all these little steps up to like this very big decision. And so that's why it was just one person who, I've just always been fascinated by people that you meet that can change the trajectory of your life. And the yes. reason why I do this show is because I wanna introduce people to people and thoughts that I think will change the trajectory of their life. Because I didn't ever wanna be a monk. I didn't think I'd become a monk. I didn't crave to, like, I, it wasn't a path I saw for myself, but it became the best thing that ever happened to me at that time. And now I live in gratitude, but I also realized, so I always ask people, who's your monk? Like, who's the person you need to meet that you haven't met yet that could change your life? There's a example in the book of people say, you know, I'm, I'm not a good artist or you're, you're either living as an, I say, you're either living as an artist or you're not living as an artist. You, there's not you're not good at it or bad at it. It's like being a monk. You're either living as a monk or you're not living as a monk. <laughs> you can't be a bad monk. If you're living as a monk, you're a monk. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, it's beautiful. I mean, you've you've had so much even today. You know, and that's why I was excited to meet you in person because you have such a spiritual journey and essence, and in, in just in spirit, even in just your presence and what you talk about, the vocabulary you have. That where where did that get infused with the work you do? Like, or is, again, has that always been there or what was your journey? I, I, I learned to meditate when I was 14 and that's turned into a big part of my life. I stopped meditating when I went to college. And then when I moved to California, I started again. And when I started again, I realized, oh, even though I hadn't done it for the last five years, a big part of who I am is because I did it when I did it. Mm. Had I not stopped, I wouldn't have recognized that. Mm. So the stopping and starting was a very clear, wow, this is, this is a big part of how I see the world already, even with not doing it for the last five years. What type of meditation is it and how, how do you- TM. I TM, oh, TM. perfect. Okay, yeah. got it, got it, yeah. I learned TM, yeah. um, changed my life. But, and since then I've learned Vipassana and yes. I do many different, many different practices and breathing practices and Tai Chi and many different meditative practices. Um, I often come back to TM maybe because it was first. Yeah, yeah. And it's yeah. beautiful. Yeah, it's absolutely. Simple and beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. And and uh, it's interesting to me, meditation just seems to be, but there was definitely an, a generation where 
meditation became really prominent in the lives of so many, especially so many people today that you that you meet that are doing, you know, Ray Dalio has been on the podcast a million times. And again, he he talks about TM as being such a big part of his financial success in terms of making wise financial investment decisions. And he is a special human as well. I feel like that resurgence is back now where where there's so much more talk about breath work and meditation and if if you had any words of wisdom or insight for anyone who's trying it, experimenting, what what would you suggest to them as someone who's done it for so long, had breaks, found usefulness in it? Are there any things that come to your heart or forefront of your? The first thing that comes up, there's a beautiful book called Wherever You Go, There You Are. I love that book. I had meditated a long period of time before I read it, but I remember reading it feeling like this is the best both introduction to meditation and reminder of the power of meditation, regardless of where you are in your meditative journey. So I would recommend that book as a as a way in and find the practice that works for you. And I, I've also used like yoga nidra mm-hmm. or guide, different guided meditations, which also are beautiful and helpful. Yeah, absolutely. I used a load of yoga nidra when I had my hernia surgery. I was like, <laughs> I couldn't get to sleep because of the pain. And so yoga nidra is beautiful. If you if you have trouble sleeping, everyone, yoga nidra is like really special. Um, you strike me as someone who appreciates growth and inner work and self-work through through at least what what you've said today and shared today and the thoughts in the book. And and I was wondering what what do you feel has been the hardest thing that you've worked on internally or the most challenging thing that you've worked on internally? You said you can only compete with ourselves artistically, but internally, what has been the greatest challenge that you've worked on or are working on now? No, I would say losing weight was the biggest challenge of my life. I weighed 318 pounds at one point and I was overweight my entire life. And and I tried everything from the beginning. I went to Weight Watchers meetings with my mom. You know, like my whole life was dealing with weight issues. And finally, just honestly getting the right information because I would do whatever was recommended and nothing worked. At one point in time, I had a performance coach living at my house for two years who watched everything I ate and um, got me to exercise and changed changed my life for the, I got so much healthier with his help. And he said, in the last two years, I've watched everything you've done. 99 out of a hundred people would have shed a hundred pounds. And for some reason, it just, the weight just doesn't come off. So I can't, he's just scratching his head. I don't understand it. Must be, you know, must be something else. And then finally, uh, I saw a nutritionist at UCLA and I, and I had, n- by this point, I believed nothing would change the situation. My mom was obese. My mom was in a wheelchair. I just assumed that that was the way it was. It was a genetic thing, I assumed. And I went to see a guy at UCLA based on a mentor friend of mine saying, I really want you to see this guy. And um, and I was sure it wouldn't work because I tried everything and nothing worked. So um but I loved this person who recommended me to go. He was one of my great mentors, recently passed away. His name was Mo Austin, great, great man. He worked for Frank Sinatra and signed Jimi Hendrix and signed the Sex Pistols and uh, unbelievable person, unbelievable human being. 
Um, and he, he was the one who got me to see this nutritionist at UCLA. He said, just go to see this guy, go to see the guy that I send you to and do whatever he said. <laughs> and, and I did. And, um, wow. I lost like 140 pounds, 135 pounds in 14 months. Wow. But that was probably the most radical just cause it was a lifelong issue. Mm. And I believed it couldn't change. Eventually I believed it couldn't change cause I tried everything. And it was in some ways, this is interesting, the moral of the story is through giving up, I turned myself over to this nutritionist. I didn't do what I thought was right. I did what he thought was right. And what he suggested sounded crazy to me, but I did what he sound, what he thought was right. And it worked in the same, like I was, I've uh, never exercised in my life, but then I started hanging out with Laird Hamilton and these incredible athletes because when I lost a bunch of weight, they invited me to start training with them. And I just wanted to be around them because they're such interesting people. Like yeah. I like being around people who are good at what they're good at, especially when what they're good at is different than what I'm good at. Yeah. It's just interesting yes. the way they see the world. So I got to hang out with these incredible athletes and, um, and through giving myself to them of doing what they said, you know, I first day I went, I couldn't do one push up, and then, and I say I can't do it. It's like, don't say you can't do it. Say you haven't done it yet. Mm. And then they, you know, trained me where I could do a hundred consecutive push ups, like cr crazy things. Yeah, yeah. You you reminded me of um, Thomas Edison's statement of uh, when you feel you've exhausted all options, remember this: you haven't. And I, I think it's so interesting with health specifically. It's, it's, it's fascinating that you chose that, but I think that's so true where you think you're doing everything right. And I've, I've experienced that with myself as well, especially with my, my gut and inflammation where I was like, I was doing everything right. I'm really living a healthy life and still having this. And then again, passing myself over yeah. to an amazing coach who's yeah. just told me exactly what I need to eat. And, what, and all of a sudden you feel better and it's almost like magic when it happens. Yes, and but it's also finding the right coach because you could see 10 other coaches and do what they say and it doesn't work. Yeah, it's We're, we're so different. That's another thing, the idea that one size fits all. Yeah. It's like there is no one answer for anyone. Yeah. We have to find our path. You could have seen probably many different monks and not had the experience you had. It was that monk spoke to you. I remember the first time I saw Ramdas speak, mm -hmm. I felt like this is the first spiritual teacher that really speaks to me. And the next one was Thich Nhat Hanh. Mm -hmm. When yes, I saw Thich yeah. Nhat Hanh speak, I was so, I felt so much peace in my body hearing him speak that I couldn't even hear what he was saying. I, I uh, went into a trance in his presence. And this is with 2,000 people. You know, in a room of 2,000 people, he stepped out on stage and I felt like I was going to pass out. Yeah. That's how much peace he carried. So being seeing these things, seeing these incredible teachers and these deep souls and getting inspired and learning from them all is, um, that's the work. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and you're right that finding our mentors, our guides, our teachers is such a, or people that inspire you is such a, such a big part of life. And I've found studying their stories and studying their, their life, it, it gives so much texture to your own as well. And you know, when, when you look at passing these things on, when you look at passing, you know, as you start this book by talking about how you're like, these aren't facts, they're my thoughts. And hopefully they, they help and support you. When you think about giving this, I can imagine a lot of young parents who are listening, thinking, well, how do I help my child to tap into their creativity? How do I help, help, even if it's not your child, but my friend, my family member, 
what are what have you found helpful ways in being a proponent of ideas that you believe in? Have you found specific things to be more authentic and useful and hence translate better? Well, I think in general, people don't like to be told what to do. Yeah. So the best way that you could inspire someone to do something is through the way that you carry yourself. And if you, if you act in a creative way in the world and you do it to the best of your ability, and if someone else recognizes it, it might inspire them to do the same. Mm. So I think it's hard to teach someone something that we don't practice. We mm. have to practice it. Yeah. That's the hardest part. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's yeah but it's also the most fun. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, it, and it's our purpose. It's the reason we're on this planet is to do this work, to do our work, whatever that is, whatever our part is, to play our part in this giant symphony. Mm. When, when you're trying to find your part, that's the part I think that confuses or concerns so many people because so many parts today have become barcodes or conveyor belts and there's so many of you doing your part, it may feel sometimes where it's like, well, I work in a company where we all do the same thing. Like, what is my part? I think there's such a, we've been talking about originality the whole time, but I think so many people feel like what they do is so, so much of a commodity. It's not original. When someone's searching for that purpose, as you said, your purpose is to play your part, which, which I think is beautiful. And I couldn't agree more. A few years ago, I really came to the conclusion. I realized that what I do is not, better than anyone or worse than anyone. It's not earlier than anyone or later than anyone. It's not for anyone or not for anyone. It's, it is just what I'm meant to do. It's just my role. And that's such a liberating place to live from. Absolutely. But it's, it's, it almost feels like today there's so much pressure for people to pursue that or find that. Yes. That they either don't find it or they get scared to look for it. What have you found to be useful on that? Well, I, I want to say that given the example you gave of the cookie cutter work. Mm, that's what I want. Um, maybe your purpose in life isn't related to your job. Mm. Maybe your job is your job and the job is the thing that supports you. And then the rest of your waking hours are devoted to your purpose, whatever that is. Mm. Yeah. And a lot of us are trying to make it the same thing. Yeah. And, and it's beautiful when it happens, mm. but it doesn't always happen. And it's out of our control also. Yeah. yeah. We can decide. I would say if you need to have a job to support yourself, that's great. That's a noble thing to do. And follow your dreams. <laughs> but I'm, I'm not saying they're one thing. Yes. They don't have to be one thing. And yeah. don't let following your dreams undermine your ability to support yourself. It could do, it could actually do the opposite. If you decide, I want to be a comedian and I'm putting all my eggs in the comedian basket and I'm going to be a comedian, the pressure of having to support, support yourself will change you as a comedian, not for the better. Mm. You, you want the stability of being able to take care of yourself in the world to be free to do whatever your passion is, yeah. whatever it is, fishing, you know, whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's so true that I think the scarcity ruins the art, right? It's the abundance of, I did my day job, I'm now safe and secure I can be artistic yes. as opposed to sometimes. And actually, I'm going to debate my own statement there because sometimes it also feels like 
the pain is the pain of trying to do something is is what creates Maybe. good art as well. Maybe. But yeah, I mean, I'm. But but you're, it could be either. There's or. pain in it anyway. There's pain anyway. Yeah, yeah, there's pain in you know getting up in front of people and them not laughing is painful. Yeah, yeah. There's it's pain painful. in it anyway. Yeah. yeah, there's pain in it yeah. anyway. If that means you also can't eat, I don't know if that makes it less, more or less painful. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> it's almost like giving ourselves permission to make art. Yes. Like I feel like there's a moment where you go, now I'm worthy almost. But what you're saying is you are always worthy because it's who you are. Yes, you're always worthy as who you are. Yeah. Why do you think we don't feel worthy of anything, not just making art, but so many of us, I think, feel a sense of like, we're not worthy to do what we love. We're not worthy to share our purpose or our passion. There's a sense of, we don't want to give ourselves. Yeah, I think there's a mythology that the people who make things that we love are special people. And that we think that they're, you know, the people on Mount Olympus and they're these magic people who are geniuses. And then there's the rest of us. Mm. And that's not the case. It's like, we're all just people. We're all doing our best. We all are good at some things, not good at other things. We're humans. And sometimes we find a way to make something beautiful. Mm. But that's it. It's, it's <laughs> no, do you know what I mean? There's no, there are no special people, really. We're yeah. all special. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I, 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 everyone, please listen to that again and again and again, because it's, that's the mess of like, that person's gifted, they're special, they did yeah. something unique. And I promise you, if you knew them 20 years ago, you wouldn't think that. No. But you just met them at this precipice of their life. And this they point. don't think so. They don't think that, no. yeah. Or yeah. if they do think so, their art will suffer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the ones who yeah. believe the hype, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. How did you respond? What was your first time you felt and even if maybe you didn't even allow yourself to feel it but what was the first time you experienced success and how did you respond to it because I hear so many people say I just wanted to repeat it right and that again yeah. getting caught in that same how, when was the first time you experienced maybe even felt successful and how did you respond to the it fir my first memory of outward success came when um the first Beastie Boys album, Licensed to Ill, was the number one album in the country. And I got a call from a person who I worked with saying, you have the number one album. I only know this because I remember the phone call. Had the call not happened, I wouldn't, I would have no idea how I felt. And, and the call came, how do you feel you have the number one album in the country? And I remember saying, I've never been more unhappy in my life. And, uh, and I think we mistakenly think some kind of outward success is going to change something in us, and it does not. It may make life more comfortable, but it doesn't change who we are. And any uh, hole in ourselves that we're hoping to fill does not get filled. And if you spend, let's say you spend 20 years of your life working towards a goal that's going to solve everything, and then you finally achieve what you've been trying to do for 20 years, toiling away. I, I won't have any fun in, because I'm working for 20 years to, for this end. And then you get that end and nothing changes. That's when you get hopeless. So it's not uncommon to see very successful artists who are very unhappy in life because they're working towards this, the thing that's going to make them feel better. And it does not make them feel better. 
I'm sure you've got to meet many very successful business people, you know, billionaire people. Very few of them are happy. Very few. And they've reached their, they've accomplished their dreams mm -hmm. and are unhappy because we don't know what we want. You know, we don't know what's going to make us happy. We're trying to fill something that maybe can't be filled through material or uh, cultural success, mm. public success. It's something else. Mm. It's some internal thing. What was it that at that time that put you? I don't know. You can't I don't remember. know. Yeah, I, I think amazing, it was more. It? I think it was more just the reality of, well, that doesn't matter at all. Yeah. And it's always been. I'll say, I like when people like the things I make. Of course. And it changes nothing. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. It changes nothing. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I found that there were only a few things through my monk experience that helped me realize what, what made a difference. One was something we're experiencing today, which I really feel from you. And Homer, who's always been here, he's filmed every episode pretty much we've done for the past God knows how long now, but that there was a stillness and a quiet and a presence. And so the first thing was presence. The, the idea that presence is a big part of, joy and happiness and just being able to actually be here right now in the way you said your one of your favorite books was um where you go there you are is that wherever you go there wherever you, you go there John you are. Yeah, yeah yeah of Beautiful course book. yeah wherever you go there you are um presence the other one is learning and growth the idea that we're growing we're evolving we're learning there is some some kind of stimulation of evolution we, we all need to evolve. The third one was achievement. There was a sense of achievement, but I think today's sense of achievement has become about an external metric as opposed to do we even think that's worthy of achieving or pursuing? And then the fourth, which to me sometimes is the most important, is the service element, the, the act, the offering that we were working always in devotion. And those were like four really simple things that I think have always form part of the the mocktail of joy happiness success when you you said something really beautiful there you said the first time you felt outward success when was the first time you experienced inward success or or felt that or is that something that's constantly in progress? no that, that's something probably making something so it would have been one of the very first records i ever made the experience in the studio of hearing something that i haven't heard before getting excited by it and then maybe going out and hearing it in a club, you know, yeah. like even getting the club to play it just so I could hear it in the yeah. club, yeah. that experience of like, wow, there it is. Or the first time you hear something that you make on the radio, it's very exciting, not because of what it means, but just, I spent my whole life listening to music on the radio. And now there's something I made on the radio. I still have this experience on a semi-regular basis, just out in the world, I'll be somewhere and in a coffee shop and a song will come on that I produced and the feeling is like, wow, can you believe it's just out there like that? I remember, I remember I, I could choke myself up. I could remember being in the room, what we were doing, like, and now it's playing here. How crazy is the world? I went to WrestleMania yesterday and a song I produced was played at WrestleMania. I wasn't expecting it. <laughs> I wasn't <laughs> expecting it. It was like, wow, WrestleMania, it's crazy. Yeah. And you still feel that today. That's what's so special. It's just so wild. Yeah. It's, you can't believe it. Yeah. It's crazy. It's magic. That I, I love I love that seeing like how long have you done this now? Like how long have you done what you do? Thirty five years. Yeah, like there was I, I, I got to go to uh I've been a Manchester United 
support of my whole life. Yeah. And I got to go again recently. I have a really wonderful relationship with the club. And I, I went to watch a game recently when I was back in England. And it was the first time I got to meet uh, legendary manager Sir Alex Ferguson and he's he's the most decorated manager in Premier League history and United's longest standing manager and you know worked with the greats and I, I got to meet him for the first time and we we're just hanging out and talking and having lunch before the before the game and what I loved what you were saying about you love watching people with greatness what I loved about him was he was talking about football like a soccer for those who, do, but he was talking about football like a fan. Yes. Still. Yes. Like I was like, I was like, Sir Alex, you gave me the best memories in my childhood. I was naming all these games that they'd won. And I, I knew he knew that. It's like me telling you my favorite songs you've worked on. I know you know them, but I had to tell him for my sake. And he was like living each game with me as yes. if it was the first. And I was like, how are you still, you know, how is it that it's still so fresh? And I guess same question to you, like, how is it still so fresh that at WrestleMania a song surprises you and you still get that childlike, like- Because it know. doesn't make sense. None of it makes sense. I remember the ordinary situation that it came out of. I remember the studio in, um, it was the, one of the first times I ever came to California. I remember it's not a studio, now it's a flower shop where the studio used to be. Uh, off of La Cienica Boulevard. And it was this tiny little studio. And I remember being in this tiny little room and one of the first times in California and what a fun experience it was making the record and how cool it was. And that now, however many years later, 25 years later, seeing a stadium of 80,000 people and a song comes on unexpectedly, it's just bizarre. It's bizarre because I know the modest beginnings of all of these. And it's just regular people like you and me showing up somewhere and making something that we think is cool. Yeah. It's unbelievable that it has some life that goes on. Yeah, yeah. It's crazy. But I love that because what I'm hearing you say that is like, you took notes, like there were mental notes of like that moment we went in that like, there's a gratitude and there's a perspective of, it wasn't just, as you've just laid out, it wasn't just about having a record on the radio. It, it was all those minute, small moments of discovery and of intrigue and curiosity, which, which you made a note of somewhere in your subconscious that you then recall and live through when you hear that song in that moment. You're not living there just listening to a song at WrestleMania or on the radio or number one. It's like you're living through all those miniature moments that that created it. Yeah, and, and I never listen back to music that I work on. So when I do hear it out in the wild, it's it's funny. It's like, wow, look, it's still there. Yeah. Crazy. Is there a reason you don't listen to it? Because I'm always making something new. I right. have no reason to go back. Yeah. You never even feel a sense of nostalgia or like a... No, unless, unless I'm working with an artist and there's an example that comes up where I think, oh, we did something like this a long time ago. This might... Listen to this and see if this gives you any inspiration. Yeah. So more more as a tool. But I would do the same for something I didn't make. You know, it'd yeah. be let's listen to this Stevie Wonder song because we maybe we'll learn something. Same. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. There's there's a beautiful chapter in this book that I want to talk about, which is all about memories and subconscious. Um, and I felt that you talk about this idea of larger intelligence and and tapping into and even making almost journaling about dreams, which I found was something that I'm definitely going to practically take on. So I've never journaled about dreams. 
I know I dream and there's times when I forget and there's times when I remember and sometimes I'll tell someone, sometimes I won't. And I, I, when I read you say that you actually wrote about dreams and journaled about dreams, I was like, all right, I'm going to start doing that now. So that's something you've directly impacted me to do as a yes. practical thing because I feel like I've had fascinating dreams in the past. I've forgotten. I've it's, it's too messy. And they go, and they, they go, dissipate they, very quickly. So quickly. Very quickly. So quickly. And that's when I was reading that part, I was like, okay, I need to hold on to these. Yeah. So uh, some of the tricks, I, I yes. talked to some degree in the book, but not, so, I just touch on it in the book. There's so much to talk about. Um, but when you wake up, you don't move at all. Because the the way the dream works, it's a chemical reaction in your brain. So it's also good to know if you wake up from a scary dream and you don't want to think about it, if you just shake your head around, it'll be gone. So you keep pen and paper right next to your bed. And the minute you wake up, you grab the pen and paper moving as little as possible and just start writing. And even if you only remember... I remember there's a part in the dream where this happens. Write the part you remember, and you'll see through the process of writing, more of the dream will appear. It's you don't even when you wake up, you don't you won't remember as much of it as you know. But once you start writing, you can start tapping into more. Oh, and before that, this happened, and then this happened after that, and you'll start noticing more details. And the more you practice it, the better you get at it. Mm. So I did that for a period of time. And at the time, the dreams made no sense. They were just these abstract, you know, Salvador Dali paintings. <laughs> and yeah, and just went on abstract. Yeah. I have no idea, strange, strange dreams, no idea what they are. And then years later, I found that journal and, and I read it. And when they were happening, I thought every dream every night was completely different. And none of them were about anything I understood. And years later, when I looked back at it, all the dreams were about the same thing <laughs> and they all were, it was so clear what my subconscious was telling me. Uh, I don't remember what it was because it was probably 20, 20 some odd years ago, but I remember being shocked by, oh, this didn't make, I was too close to it to understand it. I was too close. And with a little bit of distance, you can see what it is. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also interesting to see how your subconscious works, how it, how your subconscious abstracts reality to show it to us in a way that's intriguing and interesting, but not obvious. It's very beautiful. Mm. The reason why I love that so much is I even had to retract the immediate question that came into my mind and I retracted it because, and I'll tell everyone what it is, but I retracted it because I just love the act of observing and being present with your dream as, as you're showing us how to do. And the modern day question is, well, what's the benefit of that? Like, why, why would you do that? And, and when I was asking in my head, I was like, if I just listen to you and I'm listening to you and I remember reading what I read and I'm thinking the benefit is just the act of observing and just being there and, and, and being, and then, like you said, being able to then look back potentially, yes. potentially in the future, maybe not, maybe it is to see if there are connections and the subconscious you're so right is, is speaking to us in almost such a compassionate, artful way Yes. without telling yes. you on the nose. Yes. But it's an important point. Don't do things just because you think you're going to get something for it. That's not why we do things. Yeah. Do what's interesting to you. Follow what's interesting. Don't worry about the outcome. Yeah. We don't know. We can't predict the outcome. We can never predict the outcome. Follow your own inner guide. It directs us. 
It might not make sense. Might not make sense to us. Might not make sense to anyone else. Certainly won't make sense to anyone <laughs> else. But it might not even make sense to us, and that's okay. It's fine. Yeah. Listen to yourself. Why is it telling you this? Why is it telling you this? I told. I mentioned my heart surgery earlier. Mm-hmm. My son was born. 18 months before the heart surgery. I didn't know about the heart issue. I knew about the heart issue in that it was something I was born with, but I didn't know that it was anything I would need to deal with. And a friend of mine said, when my son was born, you're going to have a whole lot of energy and your son is going to want his mom. So you're going to have all this energy and nothing to do with it. So pick something interesting to you or that you want to do or something you want to accomplish because you're going to have all this extra energy with nowhere to put it because you're going to want it to go to to your son, but he's not going to want that. <laughs> he's mm. he's going to be taken. So I decided I want to learn uh, deadlifts, heavy deadlifts. I, I The only exercise experience I had was with Laird Hamilton, and we didn't do any any formal exercises like that. We did a lot of weight training, but it was more balance and coordination-oriented and super fun, really interesting and challenging, as challenging mentally as it was physically. Usually, you'd cognitively not be able to do it before you physically couldn't do it, which was fascinating to me too. It was never like sitting on a treadmill looking at the TV. It was always, if you were not paying full attention to everything you were doing, you'd probably get hurt. So really you're focused and I like focusing on things. So it was fun. Um, So then I thought, okay, learning like proper form Olympic deadlifting, I'm doing the Olympic deadlifting. And as the weights got heavier, I realized I was, I had this anxiety before a lift. That didn't make sense to me. And even to the point where I talked to the trainer and I said, something doesn't make sense. I'm going to pick up this weight and one of two things is going to happen. The weight will go off the ground or the weight will not go off the ground. If the weight doesn't go off the ground, we'll take off five pounds and then I'll try it again. If it goes off the ground or doesn't go off the ground, I don't care. I don't care at all. Why would I have anxiety if I don't care? Mm. Turns out the wisdom of the body knowing that when I finally found out what was going on with my heart and I talked to the heart surgeon and he asked what kind of exercise I do. And I said, oh, I'm doing this, you know, heavy Olympic deadlifting. He just, he put his hand, his head in his hands and he said, every time you lifted the weight, you're playing Russian roulette. Every time. Wow. He's like, there was no worse thing you could have done with what was going on in your heart. So, and again, I didn't know that, but something in my body had all this anxiety around something that I didn't care about at all. Yeah. So there, there are levels of wisdom that we don't know. We don't understand. So when you have an intuition to take the stairs instead of the elevator, or I always go home this way, but today, for some reason, I feel like going this other way. Yeah. Or maybe I'm going to cross the street and walk on that side of the street. Whatever it is, whatever little intuitions in your body that come, listen to them. See what happens. Be open to there's more going on than we know. Yeah. There's a lot more than our conscious mind can can pick up going on. Yeah, we often do so many things because we think they're right. We think they're healthy. They're the thing you're meant to do. and it, But it doesn't sit with you somewhere. Yeah, and And I think so many people have... I know for a fact that I feel like I started following my intuition when I was probably around 14. And so that voice is very loud. 
But I know a lot of people that I've worked with and coached and also worked with in in my life that started stop listening to their inner voice at 14. Yeah. And so it's very quiet now. And so it becomes harder to really hear it yes. because we've suppressed it for so long. And then the the ego or the outside noise is so loud that we're guided by that. We're not misguided by that. It's hard to tap into it again. Have you found anything that helps you tap into it when you feel like you're losing it or have you met someone and you've worked with, and you've said, hey, just try this to tap into it again? And the examples you just gave right now kind of feel real too, where it can be something as simple as take that route, do that. Because I find that people lose touch with it. Absolutely. I, w- I would say when, when you're getting advice of any kind, expert advice from whoever it is, know maybe that's maybe that applies to me maybe that applies and maybe it doesn't but it's okay it's okay no there's no um bad intention on the wisdom that's being shared with us people are offering their best information yeah but their the information that they're offering is based on their experience mm. so no even when it's someone you really respect when they're suggesting something maybe that would work maybe I'll try it Maybe not, but listen to what's going on in, inside yourself. And I would say getting to wherever it is that you've gotten, we've usually gotten there through listening to something going on inside of ourselves. Mm. I, I have many successful musician friends who have gotten there through listening to what's going on inside themselves and then in success think it's time to start taking direction from the outside world makes no sense. It's hard. You either, yeah, like you either do it at the beginning or you do it at the end. And it's almost like they're, they're the same as in the sense of what you were saying earlier, the idea of there's this beginner's mindset where you're always open to hear people's thoughts. So you don't know there's that idea of, I don't know. We have to feel yes. and see, but that's different to, I don't know. Therefore someone else must know, or I've known up till now no, and now no. I don't, no one we, knows. I don't know and nobody knows. No one knows. Yeah. And, and, and everyone's intentions are good. They're not out to get us, Yeah. but nobody knows. They think they know. The, the wisest thing we can do is know enough to know we don't know. Yeah. If you start from maybe, maybe that's true. It could work. Who knows? Yeah. Not hold anything so firm as this is the way it is. Yeah. I know how it is. Anytime you know how it is, your world just got a lot smaller. Yeah. Tiny. Yeah. There's, yeah, it's, this, this idea is crystallizing for me as we're talking, this idea that you can be thinking, you can be doing, you can be feeling, or you can be knowing. And a lot of us try and place so much emphasis on knowing, but no one actually knows. And so it's better to either change our thoughts, change our behavior, or focus on our feelings and sense, as you've been saying all along, it's like, you've got to feel how it Yes. Oh, wait, and, was... and I'm not saying we'll always be right. No, 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 no. There is no. Well, there is no. Right. Yeah, and there is even there is an even or wrong or right. Yeah. Pay attention to what's going on inside yourself. The, there's so much information going on inside of ourselves, intuitive information. Rick, this has been such a uh, beautiful and fascinating conversation for so many reasons. We we end every on purpose episode with a final five. Uh, and these answers are answered in one word or one sentence each. So you have that kind of capacity. And I, and I want you to tell us about your new podcast that's coming out as well. So we'll talk about it at the end. But uh, the first question is, 
what is the best advice you've ever heard, received, or given? Uh, don't listen to anyone. And what is the worst advice you've ever heard, received, or given? Don't do the thing you love. Question number three, how would you define your current purpose? Making every step that I make in the interest of the highest good. Uh, question number four, what's something that you believe strongly that you think other people find it hard to understand? Everything. <laughs> That's brilliant. Everything, everything. And fifth and final question, if you could create one law that everyone in the world had to follow, what would it be? Love each other. Beautiful. Rick Rubin, everyone. The name of the book is The Creative Act, A Way of Being. If you don't already have a copy, again, I highly recommend it. Uh, I promise you it will be an investment that will be something you pick up for years. It's not a book you read and put down and then you never see it again. It's going to be a book that you're going to go back to again and again and again, day after day, month after month. And find new gems and new jewels and new wisdom that will inspire your creative journey. So if you've been someone who's been blocked, stuck, trying to find out, you know, where that's gone or haven't ever seen it before, this will be the book to unlock it. I highly recommend it. And uh, Rick, you also have a new podcast as well. Yeah, it's yeah. called Tetragrammaton. I've been doing the Broken Record podcast for about five years where I mainly speak to musicians. And I'm so interested in in people who are not musicians. I mean, it's just one of the things that I'm involved in, but I'm much more curious than just about music. And it just seemed like, well, why would I do that? Yeah. So I've recorded the first 15 of them. Okay, amazing, amazing. Yeah. Where can people find it? Everywhere? Everywhere. Okay, okay. Make sure you go and subscribe to the podcast. Got 15, I'm sure they're coming out weekly or? They'll come out weekly. They'll come yeah. out weekly and sounds like, I'm sure you've got some phenomenal guests already lined up. So please, everyone who's listening and watching with the book, go ahead and listen to the podcast as well. I'm sure you're going to be hearing amazing interviews and introductions and new insights on people that you know and love. And I'm sure there'll be some new people there too, but uh, make sure you do that. Rick, thank you so much for today. Thank you for your energy, your presence, your uh, work and putting this together and making sure you put out the book you wanted to put out. I'm very grateful for it. I was, as I said, I was personally amazed at how you'd transformed how people would have thought about a book from you. And I hope it inspires many more people to find their truth as well so beautiful thank, thank you. you so much for reading thank it you. thank I you of course it. thank you i appreciate you if you love this episode you'll really enjoy my episode with selena gomez on befriending your inner critic and how to speak to yourself with more compassion my fears are only going to continue to show me what I'm capable of. The more that I face my fears, the more that I feel I'm gaining strength, I'm gaining wisdom, and I just want to keep doing that. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually in person and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Atna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com forward slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual.